This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for January 15th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, senior news correspondent Daniel Cleary talks with me about the past, the present, and future of the Arecibo Observatory. I also talk with researcher Toman Barsby about the influence of ecology on human behavior. Do people, like other animals, change their behavior in response to the local environment? Now we have senior correspondent Daniel Cleary. We're going to talk about what's happened to the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico and any plans for the future of the site. Hi, Dan. Hi. So Arecibo, we've been calling this a post-mortem, which is pretty depressing. What's the status of the observatory now? The observatory is still open, but its main reason for being, which is this enormous radio telescope, which is 305 meters across, is no more. It had an instrument platform suspended above it on cables, And that collapsed on the 1st of December and effectively destroyed the telescope. And this is the culmination of a number of structural failures that happened to the telescope in 2020. Yeah, that's right. The first cable broke in August. This was uh, an auxiliary cable, which had been added in 1997 when they added new instruments to this platform above the dish. So it needed more support. So they added extra cables. And it was one of these new ones, not one of the ones from its original construction, which was 57 years ago, or 58 now, I guess. And that cable pulled out of its socket. The socket is the structure at the end of the cable that allows it to be attached to something. And it just pulled out, which surprised everyone. No one expects a cable to fail in that way. You know, it went into uh, suspension while they investigated and ordered new cables to replace all of the auxiliary cables, of which there are six. And then a second cable broke. And then it was in a really perilous situation. And the National Science Foundation, which owns the telescope, 
decided it was too dangerous. The structure was not safe for people to work on. And so they decided it had to be um, decommissioned. But before that could happen, only a couple of weeks after the second cable broke, more cables broke and the whole thing came crashing down. Yeah, there's some kind of striking video of that out there on the internet, taken from a drone. You know, I asked you before the interview if you've ever visited this site, and you said no. Yeah, I'm very sad about that. And now I'm not going to get a chance to see it. You know, it was a very spectacular instrument, which uh, was very beloved of astronomers and Puerto Ricans in particular, but also filmmakers. You know, it was used in two feature films, and I think uh, the X-Files as well used it as a backdrop. I always think of Contact. It's just such a striking image, uh, the way they show it in that movie. And this is obviously a platform for a lot of science. What are some of the big accomplishments, some of the highlights from astronomy at Arecibo? It's an interesting telescope because it was used by lots of different sorts of scientists. It was originally designed to be used as a radar instrument to look at the upper atmosphere. So it would send out pulses of radio waves and then receive the signal that was bounced back off the ionosphere, which is a part of the upper atmosphere where the air molecules are ionized by the sun. This is the first instance of its use, and it wasn't even really for... It was more for defense than anything else. The Pentagon was looking for ways to track incoming ballistic missiles, which, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s was a very new issue for them. And so they built this telescope to try and understand the ionosphere better to see whether warheads left trails that they could track them by. And that didn't really work out. And so it transitioned into being a a scientific facility. So people have continued using it to look at the ionosphere to this day. But they've also used it for other things. Uh, NASA uses the radar to track objects in space that are near the Earth and could be threatening, such as asteroids. And also to look at other planets. It's been used to map the surface of Venus, which can't be seen with a normal telescope because it's surrounded by cloud. And it can look as far as Saturn. And then astrophysicists could use it to look at much more distant objects, such as uh, pulsars, which are little dead stars that send out a very regular metronome signal in radio waves. And gases in galaxies and between uh, planets. And it has a uh, hundred uses, and some of which have made it very famous. People have won Nobel Prizes with work that they did on Arecibo. We talked about those auxiliary cables giving way earlier in the year, in 2020. But is this just an instrument getting old? Is this, you know, a combination of factors? What are people saying about the failure of the structure? Well, there's long been a suspicion that the cables were suffering from corrosion. They're being put in a very moist tropical environment in Puerto Rico, and water is the enemy of steel structures, and so they eventually will rust. Whether that was the only cause, I don't know. You know, Puerto Rico is also very prone to hurricanes. The observatory was battered by Hurricane Maria in 2017, And also earthquakes. There was a series of earthquakes about a year ago that uh, really shook the observatory and uh, it had to be thoroughly checked over afterwards to make sure nothing had got uh, broken. 
But it could have done damage that people didn't know about. It's very hard to see the interior of a steel cable. You can see what's happening on the outside, and you would occasionally get the individual wires that make up the cable breaking. But um, people weren't alarmed until one of them suddenly broke. And uh, we're still waiting to hear from forensic engineers who are looking over the remains of the telescope right now. There has been a decline in funding for Arecibo over the decades. Is that part of this? Has there been a problem with maintenance or not having enough money to repair things? The National Science Foundation, which owns it, says not. Although they reduced their funding to the telescope because they had other things they needed to spend money on, which was reasonable, some other funders had increased their support slightly. So the Atmospheric Science Division of National Science Foundation, they upped their money and as did NASA. So it wasn't penniless. <laughs> yes, it wasn't penniless, but you know, it had had a reduction in, uh, in funding and the people that were running it, which was a consortium led by the Uni University of Central Florida, they were looking for other sources of money. So, you know, it wasn't on the point of bankruptcy, but it did have less money to play with than in its heyday 20 years ago. But whether that contributed to the maintenance problems, it's hard to say. What's next for this site? Is there a plan to build another instrument in this space? The National Science Foundation says they're not going to close the observatory because there are a couple of smaller instruments there and also a very popular visitor center and education center. But the scientists want to build a new telescope, you know, because it was quite unique in its capabilities. And so those that relied on it are stuck. So in three weeks, a, you know, a large group of scientists drew up a plan for a replacement telescope, which they've uh, recently sent to NSF and uh, hope that someone will want to fund it. But finding the funding is going to be the hard part. There's a decadal survey that sets funding priorities and RSCBO missed that window, right? Yes, that's true. It, that happens every 10 years. The one that is currently ongoing is almost complete. It's at the printers, I've heard. So it's too late to put something about Arecibo in it. But there are other things they can do. They could appeal directly to Congress or they could appeal to private funders. But we are talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not something that you could do on um, Indiegogo. <laughs> okay. The new proposal that was submitted, it was written in such a short time, but it's not some basic telescope. This is a really a new way of thinking about observing radio waves and more. Yes. The designers had to come up with something that would please all these three groups of scientists that use the old telescope. Those that look at the atmosphere, those that look at planets and asteroids, as well as astronomers that want to look deep into space. And one of the big problems with the old one is that it just pointed straight up. They could only look at a small part of the sky. They could steer a little bit by moving the receiver above the dish, but it was still quite a narrow strip that they were able to observe. So they want something that could steer across a wider part of the sky. So they came up with this proposal, which was to have a platform, a single sort of circular disc, as it were, 300 meters across. And 
on its surface, it would have lots and lots of small dishes. So instead of one giant dish, it would have uh, more than a thousand small dishes, each one about nine meters across. And then the whole platform would tilt to look at different parts of the sky. And so it would tilt to more than 45 degrees so that they could, uh, you know, look as far south as to the center of the galaxy, which is something that uh, is very desirable for astronomers. Oh, I'm sold. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Daniel. Well, thank you. Daniel Clary is a senior news correspondent in the United Kingdom. You can find a link to his feature on Arecibo's past and future at sciencemag.org slash podcast. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Stay tuned for an interview with Toman Barsby about how foraging human groups, non-human mammals, and birds can share some of the same behaviors in an ecological niche. We know animals are influenced by their environment. They adapt over time, you know, genetically, but their ecological niche also affects their behavior, how they find food, how they raise babies. Okay, that's animals general. What about people? Do we also experience the influence of the environment on our behaviors? Could differences between different societies have some basis in the land they live on? This seems like an interesting question that's going to be very difficult to answer if your environment is a big city and you have very little nature to contend with. In this week's issue of Science, Toman Barsby and colleagues look to hunter-gatherer groups to see if traces of environmental influence on behavior could be found. Hi, Toman. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. Is that why you looked at hunter-gatherers to avoid kind of the insulating effects of technology? Yes. Hunter-gatherer societies or foraging human populations, as we call them in the paper, generally like, you know, more tied to the local environment. They haven't migrated far and they also source food from the available local resources. There were 339 groups that you were able to cover in the paper. How were you able to get information on so many distinct forager groups? We actually relied on data that were already collected by the archaeologist Louis Binford. And he himself relied on anthropological observations from the 19th and 20th century. And basically in this database, he combines observations from human societies, mostly in North America and Australia, but then also some of them are, you know, located in Asia and Africa. The most important aspect of this database is that it captures a whole range of different behaviors for which comparable data also exist for mammal and bird species. Yeah, a big part of the study was to look at other organisms that live in the same environment as the people. Why were these comparisons important? Why were they needed? So it's not quite clear, I think, to what extent local environmental conditions constrain behavior. And I think the key question that we tried to answer in this paper is not whether, you know, the local environment in general affects behavior. I mean, that point has been made for quite a long time. That's the whole reason 
why the field of behavioral ecology exists. So the key question we want to answer is whether the constraints that the local environment imposes on behavior are similar and consistent across very different species. So across humans, mammals, and birds that share the same local environment. And when you compared certain behaviors between these three groups living in the same environment, you saw some strong similarities. We looked at a whole range of different behaviors. So in total, like we looked at 15 different behaviors that you can like loosely group into three broad categories, foraging behaviors, so everything that is related to food. The second category is reproductive behavior. And the third category is social behavior. And we basically find that foraging human populations and the surrounding non-human mammal and bird species behave very similarly across all these three dimensions. And there's actually a systematic relationship for 14 out of the 15 behaviors we analyzed. Let's take food, for example, foraging for food, finding food. I think this, is, this one is the easiest to grasp. So maybe, like, you know, like for food, the findings are not too surprising because food is something that you directly source from the local environment. But we basically find that environments where humans get a substantial amount of their calories from hunting are also environments in which, you know, much larger proportions of mammals and bird species consume meat. We find similar associations for the reliance on fish diets or how far to travel to gather food whether or not to store food, and also whether or not to migrate between different seasons. One thing it makes me think of is, in some ways, if they're eating the same things, they're competing with each other. Why are they all doing very similar things and not stratifying into different techniques? That's a really, really good question. So when we started this analysis, it was not quite clear for us what to expect. Because on the one hand, there's this argument that you've just made, that because there is competition of our resources, it would actually make sense for different species to specialize into different niches just to reduce this competition. But on the other hand, local ecological or environmental conditions might only permit a certain range of behaviors. So you can imagine like local environments to be like sort of filter and they would only allow the expression of behaviors that are kind of adaptive to this environment, or at least don't come with substantial costs. And then it might still be the case, you know, that different species that share a given environment end up with similar behaviors. We were actually really surprised that despite the fact that these species differ so much in their backgrounds, the ways they acquire behavior, the ways they experience their local environment, that local environment conditions appear to consistently shape the behavior of humans and non-human mammal and bird species in a very similar way. We talked about food. What other similarities did you see that stuck out to you? You know, for food, these similarities might not be too surprising because all these behaviors directly relate to the local environment. But we also find very similar results for reproductive and social behaviors. So, for instance, when we look at reproductive behavior, we looked at the age in which humans or animals um, had their first child. So there are large differences across human societies. In some societies, in our database, men on average have their first child when they're 30 years old, whereas in other societies, men might be younger than 20 when they had their first kid. And what we find is that at locations where humans have children later, Local mammal and bird species are also older when they first reproduce. And we find similar associations when we look at 
the proportion of individuals having multiple partners, so polygyny, how far individuals would move to live with new partners once they marry or reproduce, and how likely it is that individuals actually divorce. What didn't translate? What was not common between non-human mammals, humans, and birds? So the only behavior where we didn't find this association was patrilocality. So that's the extent to which females leave the social group in which they were born to reproduce elsewhere. But to be honest, I would not overinterpret this finding. I think what matters here is in general that we see this very systematic pattern across so many different behaviors. And of course, we're also very much bound by data availability. So there are like lots of additional dimensions we cannot look at. And there's also certainly ways in the future that might improve the comparability of data across species. So I think future research will tell which other dimensions also show similar associations or not. How do you interpret these results? Do you see this influence of environment on humanity as a whole? How do you weigh, you know, our understanding of diversity between groups? How do you weigh what you're finding here with habits, trends, cultural practices? So on the one hand, you know, our behavioral flexibility has allowed us humans to conquer very diverse environments. But at the same time, it seems that humans, or at least the foraging humans we study, rely on very similar behavioral strategies as non-human animals in their local environments. So this really suggests that local environmental conditions are important for understanding why behavior varies so much across environments and cultures. So ecology or differences in ecology might be one of the key reasons why human cultures differ so much. Do you feel like there is a risk here that people are going to overinterpret this and apply it not just to the groups that you studied here, but to industrialized societies? It's not quite clear what our findings tell us about industrial human societies. These are the societies most of us live in, basically. So you might think that on the one hand, you know, we now have agriculture, we can rely on markets to trade across, you know, very distant locations. We have technology. All these things, you know, should actually help us to reduce the influence of the local environment. So you might actually expect a lower degree of behavioral similarity between humans and animals nowadays, at least in these industrial human societies. But on the other hand, it might also be the case that there might be path dependencies. So for instance, by cultural transmission, so past behaviors passed on to subsequent generations, which might then constrain the evolution of behaviors. I think our evidence on foraging human societies doesn't really tell us much about whether this relationship exists for industrial human societies that most of us live in today. Why do you think this is important to understand, you know, the ecological contribution to human behavior? I think it's important to understand if you want to try to make sense of the global variation you observe in behavior, first of all, across human societies, but then also across different species from the animal kingdom. There's, you know, huge variation in how different humans and animals behave across the globe. And I think we still have an imperfect understanding how we should actually explain this variation. And I think our findings at least help to explore what might be at play here. This is not environmental determinism. Where people live does not dictate their behavior on a grand scale. 
No, not at all. And that's certainly not the point we want to make. So our findings actually show that there are still, you know, multiple ways to behave in all the different environments we study. The way we should think about the results is that local constraints are like a filter that makes specific behaviors more likely to occur in those environments where they're beneficial and therefore adaptive. So for instance, food storage is more beneficial environments with strong seasonality that makes it difficult to source food in winter. Therefore, you know, food storage is hence relatively frequent in these regions. But this does not imply that food storage is not found in other environments with a more stable food supply throughout the year. It is just less frequent in those environments. Thank you so much, Toman. Thanks, Sarah, for having me. Toman Barsby is an associate professor in the School of Economics at the University of Bristol. You can find a link to his article and a related insight piece at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe on the site or anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.